Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 6th, 2022. The, well, obviously, it's the January 6th edition of the Gab Fest. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I am here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and a lowly instructor at Yale University Law School. She is <laughs> somewhere sunny. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And from Washington, D.C., where he's doing some important journalism today because it's the January 6th anniversary, is John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning. Hello, John. Hello, David and Emily. It's a little cold here. This week, the anniversary of January 6th, whether the country is in better or worse shape than it was then, we will talk with Jamel Bowie of the New York Times about that. Then Omicron, schools, pandemic fatigue. Oh, my God. Yeah, what's to say? Well, we will tell, we will say it. Whatever there is to say, we will say it. And then our third topic will be the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes for defrauding investors and what it tells us about Silicon Valley. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. One year ago today, a mob of Americans, many associated with virulent right-wing groups, some most, I would say, drawn by a wickedly charismatic president who summoned them there, all in the thrall of a vicious lie about the election, stormed the Capitol, overwhelmed and attacked police officers, desecrated the halls of Congress, threatened the vice president and the House Speaker and many others, shamed America in the eyes of the world in a temporarily vain effort to stop the Senate and the vice president from certifying the presidential election that President Trump, then President Trump, had lost. They were egged on by Trump, who watched their attack without acting and clearly was pleased by it. And it's now very clear that we came very, 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 very close to a coup that month, not only because of that attack, which I think was probably less dangerous, but also because of the paperwork coup, the great phrase of the Atlantic, that presidential lawyers and various unscrupulous allies were attempting. So we're joined by Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times, to talk about the national catastrophe of January 6th and how dangerous this moment is. Apologies, I have like a now some tree cutting in my background. I hope it doesn't get picked up. John, let me start with you. If you believe, and maybe you don't, but if you believe that American democracy is in more danger than it was one year ago today, why is that? Why has the horror of that moment and the shame of that moment and what resulted from it taken us further away from a stable democracy rather than closer towards a stable democracy? Why have we gone in the wrong direction? Well, I think the first thing is just that the, that you had an incident where you had the person with the highest political power ever take direct aim at the heart of democracy. We've never had that before. You can't get any higher than a president. And as you said, in both improvisation and the, and the structural ways in which he tried to do that, and there was not a universal revolt in the political system. There was for about a day or so, but that that revolt didn't stick and that there is a debate, even in the moment. I mean, you had the majority of House Republicans voting essentially with that um defouling or befouling, I should say, of democracy. So that from its inception, there was never a clear view on something that should be absolutely clear because of the because of just how bad it was. And then secondly, that 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 as as we we all know, the things that contributed to January sixth started long before January sixth. And they still continue. The idea that fantasy can be can replace facts, the idea that the other side can be demonized constantly. Not just occasional demonization, but constant demonization, which dehumanizes them and therefore makes any action against them uh, uh, okay. That violence is a pos- is a, a possibility uh, when you don't get what you want. All of those things, which led to January six, are still out there, and in some cases are are being um, perfected. The, the thing that's in fact being perfected is the idea that because democracy is so illegitimate in the way it's carried out right now efforts need to be made to put structures in place to basically overturn any election that doesn't go the way Republican lawmakers would like. Um, that All of those things are still continuing. And um, a person who should be a pariah in the Republican Party, President Trump, based on his actions, is in fact the leader of the party and the one that the majority of Republicans would like to see in the office again. Jamel, kind of the same question to you. What if we're in more danger. Why are we in more danger than we were? Similar to what John said, I think sort of the top line answer to this is just that 
Donald Trump is the front runner for the 2024 Republican uh, nomination. You know, if if he decides to run, it's not clear that anyone would actually challenge him. Um, and if he does have nomination, there's a good enough chance that he'll he'll you know win the presidency uh, with another electoral college misfire, meaning he probably will not win the popular vote, but his coalition is geographically well distributed enough to win the electoral college vote anyway. Which I think gets to the the biggest problem, um, the biggest issue, uh, sort of looking back and looking forward, which is that I don't think you can disentangle January 6th or the impulses that led to January 6th, the impulses that led a lar- large parts of the Republican Party not just to accept or go along with the argument that the election was somehow illegitimate, um, but to actively push ahead with, um, as John said, uh, policies, laws that would make it easier to overturn future election results. I don't think you can understand that without underst- without looking at how American institutions have essentially allowed a party to win political power without having to win a majority of the vote and the incentives that creates for that political party. A thing I like to remind people of is that after George W. Bush won uh, the presidency in 2000 uh, as a you know, minority president, uh, losing the popular vote, his the Republican Party under Bush then attempted to build a national majority, right? There was an actual effort to at least say, we, we didn't win. Uh, there was an acknowledgement that we did not win a popular majority, so we should attempt to win a popular majority. In 2016, there was no attempt to build a popular majority out of that win, out of that sort of asterisk win. And the extent to which Republicans have internalized the idea that they can only win through sort of the weaponization of, of the, anti, the anti-majoritarian features of American democracy, I think has created this kind of spiral, this sort of downward spiral in which the Republican, many Republicans and much of the Republican Party has essentially become unable to disentangle themselves from those institutions and um, uh, embrace any attempt to build a popular majority to win over, you know, most Americans to their program. And that that kind of interacts also with something that's even more longstanding, this idea that some Americans are legitimate participants in political life and some aren't. And so when you have those two things kind of working together, what you have, I think, is this political idea, this ideology, where democratic victories, regardless of the procedures at work, are illegitimate because they consist of people who are not legitimate. And on the on the other side of this, Republicans are entitled to power regardless of the actual outcome of the election. For as long as that is kind of where things stand for much of the Republican Party, I think you can fairly say that American democracy remains in danger, or to amend that statement a little bit, the the ideal of political equality among citizens that we've been trying to move towards since the 1960s is in danger, because it is entirely possible that one future outcome, one future resting place for American democracy, quote unquote, is where we were before the 1960s, which is where political equality and political rights are basically distributed based on where you live in the country and based on what groups you belong to. And so we could very well have, you know, return to some system of, you know, subnational authoritarianism, as I think the, is the term, the political science term for it, with kind of a facade of national democracy. So I, I guess I only say that just to, to make the point for listeners that the, the range of outcomes isn't like, you know, some, you know, you know, jackbooted thug and, and, you know, autocracy as we understand it from a movie, you know, like, you know, blue and gray color palette. It it could look very much like what the United States was for most of its most of its history, and to the extent that that is jarring, it only should be a reminder that the norms of political equality, you know, one person, one vote, equal access to the ballot that we take for granted are very recent, historically speaking, in American life. So for me, the big fear about why I feel worse instead of better is that we haven't done anything since January 6th to strengthen democracy. We've only seen some Republican-led states move to weaken it and to create the opportunity for more 
partisan meddling if there's a really close election. And so my faith that if there's a really close election, the winner will be fairly determined is less than I had, not more. And we did not use the crisis to act. You know, we didn't even fix the Electoral Count Act, which is this like, you know, loaded gun, which hopefully will never go off. But the ambiguity in that law, which is about, you know, what happens if there are competing slates of electors that come from various states, what's Congress supposed to do? It's from 1876. It's muddled. And we just need to get rid of the ambiguity in it. And then, of course, there are these broader problems about equal access to voting and misshapen power in America that Jamel is talking about. And for me, what is gets tricky about this is some of those inequities are baked into the Constitution, for example, the way the Senate is apportioned. And so I think the conversation gets tricky because we don't have this clear path to majority rule. And I actually think this is out of sync with what the framers even really wanted, although you can argue about this, but the lopsidedness, the difference in representation now, the power of your vote for Senate, if you live in a big state versus a small state, is manyfold what it was at the founding. And this is where I just get really worried that the structure of the Constitution is rickety and we don't have mechanisms for fixing it. But because it has these kind of counter-majoritarian elements in it, one party does not necessarily have to take the steps Jamel was just outlining. That, I think, is a... I stub my toe on that when I think about this topic because it's not this sort of clean, okay, well, that's unconstitutional. Some of the flaws are in our Constitution. Do you guys think that we could get to a situation where if the Republican control over things like courts and state legislatures and state election boards and in enough states are deeply entrenched enough that there's just this idea that, well, Democrats are not allowed to win national elections? I mean, I can't see us getting to that point where, where you even even a minority, a minority Republican Party, which has entrenched its rule – uh, using these counter-majoritarian a- aspects of the Constitution, where there would be Republicans would simply say, well, Democrats can never rule. That doesn't seem like a recipe for anything. I mean, I wouldn't even think, I don't even think Republicans want that, really. But but do you think that there's a possibility that it'll just be like, oh, Republican president, Republican president, Republican president, Republican president, Republican president? I, I think Trump is the X factor here. I think if it weren't about Trump, because c- there's nothing unusual historically speaking, about a party kind of trying to entrench itself into sort of as many parts of government as possible. This happens pretty much immediately, right? Sort of after John Adams loses re-election in 1800, um, the Federalists try to pack the courts. And and sort of one of the big first standoffs with the federal judiciary is between Jefferson and his Republicans and the Federalists along the lines of of packing the courts. And then if I have this correctly, I think Marbury versus Madison comes out of this kind of standoff. Yes. So a political party trying to burrow itself into the counter-majoritarian parts of the government in order to like stop a popular majority is, I think, just kind of the push and pull of American politics. What makes all of this different is Trump. Trump makes it different because he does not seem to see any distinction between himself and the office. And so for him, the pres- he is the he is the president and sort of like in a judge dread, I am the law kind of way, sort of like it is he is a personification of the office. And he does not think that there are any other legitimate holders of the office. And to the extent that that attitude is sort of filtered down into the Republican Party base, I think it's created a situation where, yeah, given a close election where – you know, the electoral votes in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan and Georgia are going to be the difference between Trump in office and Trump not in office. I actually do think that you would have Republican state legislatures, um, Republican state lawmakers pull the trigger on 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 an attempt to, to put him in office above the will of their voters. If it wasn't Trump, I'm not sure I think that would happen, right? I think this is I think a lot of this is tied to the psychology of Donald Trump and the way that is interacted with the Republican Party and the political system. And I would just to add on to that, it's it's everything Jamel says and it doesn't necessarily David need to be the end state you describe, which is Republican president after Republican president. What needs to happen is you need to have whether it's Donald Trump or someone else Um, actions that are uh, collectively so outrageous that then the response from 
Democrats or whoever feels robbed by the way in which Republicans have done this, the response is violent. As Kennedy said, if peaceful revolution is impossible, violent revolt is inevitable. And so it doesn't need to be, it, it, what needs to happen is people to feel so robbed by the structure that's been put in place that they respond violently. That begets more violence that you, that you break the center of democracy, which is the idea that you can resolve things in a nonviolent way. So that's a obviously terrible outcome. But I want to go back to Jamel's point about a kind of Potemkin democracy, which in some ways seems more plausible to me, because I think that it's unusual in American life to have like the true boiling point, right? I mean, even January 6th, which boiled over, uh, then kind of went away. And then we kind of returned to stasis. And I look back on all of the (laughs) decades in which there was hugely unequal representation to Congress and in some states to state legislatures where, like Jamal was saying, if you lived in a town with 200 inhabitants, you might have the same representation in a state legislature as a town with thousands of inhabitants. That was true in Connecticut for centuries. And people just kind of went along with it. And that was the case until the one-person-one-vote rulings by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. You would think that there would have been a kind of democratic swell to change that form of representation. But there was all this tradition and history behind it, and people just kind of lived with it. Uh, and I I worry about that scenario a lot. Emily, to dig into that a little bit, the I don't think we are going to see a repeat of January 6th. I think the likelihood of an actual armed coup, of a violent coup in this country, is lower than it was a year ago. I think people were widely disgusted by what happened and felt ashamed by what happened. And even the people who participated felt ashamed by what happened. I don't think that violence is the first tool that anyone is going to use. I'm not saying that violence isn't a tool that it could never get used. I just think it's it's pretty it's dropped further down the list than it was uh, a year ago. But, but people do see it as a more viable option than they did a year ago. No, I don't think they do because I I don't. Oh, I, well, that's I, what they I, tell I th- pollsters. Well, you, you, then they tell pollsters, but then when you kind of dig into what do they mean by violence, like they. But how many of real them do ambiguity. you need? That's the thing. You don't need a whole well, lot. But, but I'm but, sorry to interrupt. But. I don't think that one of the reasons why you can tell that even Republicans are uncomfortable with what happened on January 6th is that they themselves have totally incoherent and self-contradictory explanations for it. Like that, oh, it was a false flag or they were just tourists. Like no one wants to really own the violence because owning the violence, it means owning something which is so antithetical to to like the way we're supposed to do things in government. But that doesn't mean that the threat is less. I think just the threat is much more all these counter-majoritarian things that exist in the Constitution the, the people who are now running to manipulate election boards, the ways that you can do this on paper, the ways that you can do this legally, the ways you can sort of manipulate things on the edges that rather than we're going to intimidate you with guns into doing this, it's going to be done in all these other ways that allow you to maintain the, that Potemkin veneer around it. That would be my guess, which is Jamel, sort of con- confirming and like agreeing with what Jamel and Emily have just said. Can I make a point about this just by analogy? Um, So one of my hobby horses over the last couple of years has been, you know, whenever people talk about the decline of American democracy, they jump to kind of, they jump to a European example. And I find this very frustrating and annoying because you don't really need to look outside the, I'm a little parochial here. You don't need to look outside the United States for examples of this kind of stuff. And I think that one of the more relevant examples and one that I think cuts across how people think about how these things unfolded was um, basically how Jim Crow emerges. I think that how people understand Jim Crow is emerging is, you know, Reconstruction ends and white people are very racist. And so then you have Jim Crow like the next year. But that's not really how things work. What actually happens is after federal troops are largely withdrawn from the South, you have this kind of 15-year period where people are trying to figure out what politics looks like now in the absence of this federal commitment and you have during this period, there's a the beginning of what's called the Long Depression. So there's just a ton of economic unrest. There is lots of labor unrest, agrarian unrest. And you have elections in the South become kind of hit with this even more endemic violence than before, sort of r- routine fraud, routine killings, all sorts of stuff around elections. It's in the 1890s that 
Southern elites who are, you know, white supremacist, very racist, but also find the violence kind of distasteful and potentially destabilizing to their economic plans, um, begin looking for ways to institutionalize elite dominance over politics. And that's when you get Jim Crow. That's when you get the set of laws meant to kind of write blacks of the electorate, write quite a few poor whites out of the electorate as well, and kind of create a more stable status quo. And I think that's that's a better way to understand what may happen post-January 6th. I think you're right, David. I think elites probably find the violence very distasteful and very destabilizing. And so the effort to kind of look for ways to, you know, usurp popular majorities to entrench oneself into the constitutional system, those things can get you the same kinds of results with kind of a veneer of legality and legitimacy. And that's, I think, kind of the, the like you said, David, that's the danger. That's sort of, if you understand Jim Crow as the veneer of legitimacy over a system of dominance and hierarchy, then I think you have a better sense of like what things can actually look like. On the on the violence point, I think you're you're probably right, David, that that there's not a storming of the Capitol uh, again. Although I don't know, um, but the violence is now implicit, and it's obviously the violence and the fear of violence is what has kept a lot of Republican lawmakers silent and quiet. And the only one of the ways this fever breaks is if Republicans of stature and in number call out their their own party, and they haven't. Um, and part of the reason of that is is that even those when they retire don't do it because they're worried about the violence slash grief they'll get in the streets of their own cities. But, I think wait, you've also John, seen... I, the, but the violence and grief are different things. I don't think, you know, Liz Cheney is, a, is anathema to the Republican Party right now. Liz, I'm sure Liz Cheney, you know, takes precautions. I don't think there's a legitimate... Well, I there's one of her. I mean, it's, if it weren't people so scary, are there'd be more they're, than they're, one. No, but they're they're scared. They're scared about their political career. They are scared about losing their job and their well being and their place in a community. They're not, not necessarily well, fearful of their lives. They're fearful of being ostracized because their political views do not reflect the views that the dominant uh, force in the party demands. I think you can be fearful of both. I think when local school officials are getting people, armed people showing up in their front yards, I think there's a reason for people to be a little nervous. And I think what, going back to Jamel's point about Trump, is that what he has created, we don't know what the possibilities are anymore because he has so lowered all of the restraints with the enabling of his party, all of the norms that were lowered for four years, starting back in the caucuses in 2016, all those norms that were lowered allowed all of this stuff to rush in. Those norms are all still lowered. And the apocalyptic, steady diet of apocalyptic television that uh, and, and social media that people are getting encourages violence because it's the only way you can stop these horrible monsters who are on the other side. Emily, do you think that the prosecutions of the January 6th uh, insurrectionists have any impact on any of these larger questions that we're talking about? I mean, that whether or not they, they're, they're certainly correct. I mean, these are people who, who've committed a violent act against the government and attempted to disrupt the election and, and they should be prosecuted. But do you think that it actually has any deterrent effect on, on these issues around the, the stability of elections going forward? I mean, minimal. You know, it is important to hold people accountable. On the other hand, it's only the people at this ground level who actually stormed into the Capitol who are as yet being charged. Nobody in the sort of planning, overseeing part of this is facing criminal consequences. And I mean, I don't know what the evidence really is for bringing those kinds of charges. The Department of Justice is properly not been public about that, as they shouldn't be until and unless they indict someone. But the fact is you have the kind of foot soldiers, if you will, bearing the brunt of punishment here. And a few of them have kind of cried out at some point in their court proceedings to say that they were duped by former President Trump. But a lot of them don't seem to necessarily have that attitude. And I think in the sort of scrum of incentives here, that if you are a true believer and you think that there is glory to be gained and that this, you know, the election 
reach the false result because a lot of um, people on the right do believe that, according to the polls, then it seems like you would still have an incentive to rise up. And, you know, it doesn't take very many people, right, to cause a lot of violent trouble. That's what I don't think this is like a mainstream view. I don't think most people or most people who are, you know, super right wing would do this. But I don't like that's one of the lessons of January 6th is you need hundreds of people. And they came so close. And it does seem to me like, because we haven't protected ourselves more, the chances that, you know, some event of the same ilk could succeed, not exactly the same thing, but something like it, I think those chances are higher, not lower. So Jamel, as we leave, You've just done this wonderful analogy to Jim Crow. Are there lessons from how we extricated ourselves from Jim Crow that could give us some like tiny little shard of hope, uh, a little a little crystal of hope to take forward to January 6th, 2023? Well, you know, the, the path towards something like democracy in the American South uh, uh, was like a hundred, well, about eighty years, right? It was you know, if you if you say eighteen ninety is roughly the point at which you can say Jim Crow is like beginning to emerge. The Voting Rights Act becomes sort of the point where you can say that you're the beginning of actual democracy in the South. And so for me, that isn't like terribly hopeful, right? And so a long time. Um, Lots of wandering <laughs> in the life. wilderness, twice as yeah, much yeah. as Exodus. Th- to get to that point, you have, right, like decades of intellectual work, of mass movements. You have, you know, I, I think you can't really um, uh, discount the importance of events. The Second World War and the Cold War be- are these powerful um, forces Power, that that galvanize and generate energy for reform in the South. So I'm not sure how much that history offers a path out outside of sort of the usual point about how even under you know conditions of oppression, mass movements, mass organization can have a really powerful effect. And it's sort of to that point, I think you know if if you identify some of the issues here with the constitutional system itself, as as Emily was saying earlier. I think that the path forward, the path towards a stronger democracy is going to have to include a mass movement for constitutional change, including elites on both sides of the ideological spectrum, understanding that something needs to give in our constitutional system. And for that, it wouldn't be the first time Americans have done something like that. But I think that's what would be necessary, that if if you think as i do that the the issues here are very much tied to the incentives our our electoral system and constitutional system are, are currently producing then you just have to change those incentives you got to ch- you got to change it something and it doesn't have to be dramatic um you don't have to completely tear down the the infrastructure here but you do have to be a bit a little creative about how you want to structure you know american politics and american democracy to avoid this kind of outcome so then if those structures change, if you have basically a bottom-up sense of pressure, doesn't, does it then is the next step in the idea that that, that essentially has to work on Republican lawmakers, that, that they have to feel either a moral pressure or an electoral pressure to do, you know, what Truman did with uh, integrating the military and getting, you know, the, the delegates from Mississippi and Alabama to walk out of his convention or what Johnson did with civil rights and, and losing the South, that they have to feel some other political benefit or just take the moral risk to lose support from within their own party. Is that how that next happens? Or does the mass movement have another effect that changes the current system? That That's a good question. Um, because the, the thing about the former option is that it kind of depends on Republican elites in particular having a commitment to electoral democracy above and beyond whatever particular partisan advantage they might hold. And that's sort of, I mean, we obviously can't take that for granted anymore. And so, I mean, my, this, this is when I start getting really speculative. If, if, if the United States gets to a point where there's sort of a genuine mass movement for constitutional change, right? Sort of, it's something that that has a a major impact on how American politics are conducted on along the lines of like the civil rights movement, right? Sort of in terms of scale, then maybe that would pressure lawmakers on both sides to begin to try to do something, or maybe it becomes an avenue for um, the the public through another set of representatives to 
to begin trying to change the Constitution on its own. This is this is when I say this is speculative. The Constitution we have, right, isn't the product of some sort of set of procedures that we followed. It's the product of a bunch of elites and their supporters being like, we should have a new Constitution and let's do it and then convince everyone that they should adopt it. And I don't know that we should write that out of the realm of possibility, right, for things that can happen in the future. Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. Jamel, thank you. That was excellent. Thank you for having me as always. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. They get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn. You also don't get any ads on any Slate podcast. You get lots of bonus content of all sorts. And you can become a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Our bonus segment today, Jamel is going to stick around for it. We're going to talk about what work of art we would like to possess for ourselves. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Omicron, oi. As we are taping here on Thursday morning, my son's school here in D.C. is supposed to be open, but given the testing chaos, who knows what's actually going to happen. He could walk back in the door any moment because they've closed it down. Meanwhile, in Chicago, the Chicago schools are not opening because of an increasingly acrimonious standoff between the teachers' union and the school district. There's just been this extraordinary surge in cases accompanied by a much smaller surge in serious illness, hospitalization, and death, but not none, not nothing. And overwhelmingly, of course, the serious cases are among the unvaccinated. This wave is moving so fast, Emily, that it's surely going to burn through the country in weeks, and by February, we are all going to be back to normal in all respects of life, right? I mean, I like that idea. I don't think it's crazy, actually, in terms of the speed of Omicron. And it, it does seem to be overcoming Delta and providing protection against Delta. What I'm incredibly frustrated about is that in the moment when we don't really know how long it's going to last, it is, again, the schools that are bearing the brunt of um, closure instead of bars and restaurants, even though two years in almost, we know that it's bars and restaurants that the closures might actually really be the things that would prevent transmission. And yet again, we're kind of making this big choice to have kids um, be the people who sacrifice. And we know at this point that remote learning has um, really been to kids' detriment on average, that Black and Latino kids are suffering more as a result of it, and also that the mental health consequences for kids have just been catastrophic. And yet, we're still running the same play. I, I it just it enrages me. No, Emily, I'm totally enraged. I share your rage, but I do want to pause a minute and think about like what we're talking about here. The issue is not, except in Chicago. I don't think the issue is really, oh, there were recalcitrant teachers who were like, I won't teach. And it's not that. It's that there's very little slack in the system. There's very little slack in any of our systems. And if you have schools where 20% of the teachers are sick or have been recently exposed such that they're not supposed to, to be showing up, what are they supposed to do? 
when they can't cover a quarter of their classes and a quarter of kids are, you know, there and there aren't subs to do it either. It's 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 not necessarily that 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 oh we've decided to to throw to to to, to just screw over the students. It's that there isn't there aren't enough resources supplied to schools such that they can uh, cover all these classes so that the kids can be taught. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally important distinction. And if we have two weeks in which the staffing shortfalls because teachers are infected and sick and quarantining mean that the schools just can't staff, like, I mean, that's the reality. However, the idea that as a society we have not mobilized to make this the very last thing and that we can't figure out what to do and we didn't prepare for it, even though there was over $120 billion in the federal relief fund that was supposed to be about schools preparing for COVID, all of that is what is enraging me. I'm not enraged at the teachers. I mean, I think the situation in Chicago is its own particular problem, and I don't know enough about it to really weigh in. But I, it's not that I'm angry with the teachers. It's that we have, as a society, made this choice yet again, and it is a really bad choice. If it turns out to be very short-term, that will be a lot better than medium to long-term. But it is still a choice we're making when we know that schools are not the substantial site of transmission. But just to be clear, you mean the choices we made were mistakes before the ones that are being made today? Because you can't have bars and restaurants. The bars and restaurants thing, I mean, you can't have bartenders go teach school, as David's saying. The, yeah, I mean, obviously the, it's not fungible. I'm the, just saying that, like, if you were making a, a real effort, I, I understand that this short-term problem of staffing shortages is real. It, it still <laughs> there is just this larger set of choices well, we made earlier, right, John. Exactly like you, as you were saying, that have brought us to this point and made this seem like an acceptable outcome, and it is not. Right, and but, if they if people had a sufficient idea of the of how unacceptable this outcome was, they would have stocked every storeroom with tests. It does seem to me that that is a repeat of one of the original problems here, and one that the Biden administration. Um, was supposed to have known how to avoid. When they came into office, they said the lesson of Ebola was spend all the money, and if you get stuck having built a bunch of hospitals in Africa that you never use, fine. Because you built them over there, and the problem took care of itself over there, and better to spend money than get stuck with a problem here because you didn't spend the money. So now you hear the president saying, gee, I wish I'd, uh, you know, ordered up a bunch or that we had a bunch of tests out there. Well, we were doing shows two years ago about the necessity of easy, rapid, at-home tests. Yeah, yeah. And the idea that nobody said, you know, this thing might mutate. And, and that's a real live possibility. In fact, we've been using that in our argument for why people should get vaccinated, because the more virus that's out there, the more chances to mutate. And so in addition to using that as an argument for getting vaccinated, we might also want to spend a lot of money on tests because... Uh, one of the keys to keeping schools open is making sure people are are tested, or at least, you know, after five days or a short period of quarantine, if you test and you're clear, particularly with the particularities of, of Omicron, you can get back into the into uh, school and not be spreading. And the and the fact that the testing doesn't exist is is outrageous. The only other thing I would say is that. It would be great if it would all burn through uh, with Omicron and that was it. But I think one of the things Omicron has taught us is that because unlike the others, it can slalom around the vaccine, which is also what makes this case particular, that it's it's no longer just the population of the unvaccinated. The population of the unvaccinated are the ones who are getting seriously sick. But for the purposes of quarantine and disruption, the vaccinated population increases the number of people who now have to worry again about getting infected. And, you know, we could get another strain that, you know, slaloms around vaccines again, or that is has some other particularity. And and so I, I wish I could think this the last time, but I, I don't know, there always seems to be a mutation. Well, but it's, but at some point, you know, there is a flu, and there are colds and flus and colds move around the country all yeah. the time. And every year they come and some people get vaccinated and some people don't. And some percentage of people get sick and some thousands or tens of thousands die from the flu. Um, but it is not it is not 
an emergency that the whole country lives with and thinks about all the well, time. And ultimately, people are just like, I'm not going to I'm going to the movie there. Yes, we know there's flu. I'm still going to the movies. I'm not wearing a mask because I want to go to the movies. Without that's a, mask. a mindset. We're going to that's a mindset change, yeah. not a, we're, a, a virus change. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's inter- we're, we're, interesting about this. Well, we've reached that. Point. Right, right, right. We've reached right, that right. point in much saying, of the country. But you were saying this is the last this yeah. is the last one. It may not be the last one, yeah. but our but our response, the mindset change has definitely happened. If you lift, listen to Anthony Fauci, when he was defending the CDC's decision to change the quarantine period from 10 to 5 days, he basically said, you know, the idea, he, he said it was both, you know, the science suggested that after 5 days you weren't transmissible, which is, you know, debatable. But then he also said, we want to get people back to their jobs uh, and keep society running smoothly, which... Um, you know, it means that there were two considerations in his mind, not just the pure, pure science. I want to just actually linger on this spare capacity issue that the shortage we have in in a lot of cities now, public transportation is compromised because in the, similarly, there's a significant number of people who cannot operate trains or buses where I live in D.C. The buses are way down because there's a huge number of bus drivers who are sick or are not allowed to operate buses right now. And there just aren't extra people to do it. And this is to me is analogous to what happened with the supply chain issue. The issue in inflation, as I understand it, is not really that there is not enough people making the goods in China or Thailand or or Mexico. The, the issue is not really that there is too much demand driving prices. It's not that everyone suddenly absolutely needs to have this bar of chocolate. It's that the in between point, the sort of getting things, the logistics that gets the supply to the people who buy it is all fucked up and snarled. And that that piece of it is screwed. And that's what's causing basically what's causing the inflation. And I feel like that's analogous to what's happening in schools, where the issue is not that nobody, everyone wants kids to go to school. Everyone knows that remote learning is bad. Uh, but there is this problem, which is there just simply are not enough staff and teachers who are healthy to operate it and keep it going in a way that that allows children to get educated and that's there yes there are ways to have prevented it to have established this infrastructure of testing and and infrastructure of forced vaccination and so forth but we which we didn't do but right now it is it's just like it's non it's not a resolvable question it's not because people are ill have ill intent it's just because we've we've we found ourselves here but that is the extra demand that caused the snarls so it's just demand in a different part of the. No, it's not necessarily. I don't think it's a. No, Port of LA is up twenty percent uh, over its highest previous part. I mean, and that's true of all the ports in terms of the amount of stuff they're trying to s- squeeze through the existing supply chain. I mean, that's definitely what's caused all the snarls is the increase in demand. That doesn't really matter because it was just an analogy. Okay. I got no dog in this fight. I have no idea what the answer is. Emily. We were very harsh on the Trump administration in the first year of the pandemic. Their response in most ways was really bad and ignorant. And it's clear that the Biden administration is more rational than the Trump administration. The people who are staffing it have more experience, and more expertise. And yet uh, the CDC messaging is confusing as hell. The testing capacity we've talked about is low. There is not this, you know, these scads and, and uh uh, we're not being rained with uh, with rapid tests such that everyone can be tested all the time. Why has the Biden administration been so poor when we expect them to be so much better? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think there is some element of like entrenched bureaucracy, right? So one of the reasons we don't have more rapid tests were the delays in approving tests from the FDA, which was following its usual procedures and treating tests in a way that made them harder to get quick approval for. And you know, the tension there is that if you change, maybe you have procedures that are antiquated and don't work fast enough in a pandemic. That seems clear to me. But then there's an argument that if you mess around with them, that's politicizing the process in some way, or just that you're losing these kind of guardrails that are important. And that, I think, sort of paralyzed at least part of our access to tests. I also think that there is just this way in which, while it was predictable that there were going to be variants, the fact that Omicron came along and was so transmissible and swept through the world at this stage, I think that did take a lot of the experts by surprise and has created this particular 
challenge. And I also think the mindset part of this is important too. There are a lot of people, I hear more and more people are just like ready to feel like they're done with this. They are, you know, willing to take the risk of getting COVID, which for a lot of people is a relatively mild risk. But the policy changes are not there to support that way of life in parts of the country, in the Democratic-led parts of the country. And I think the Biden administration has been kind of trying to straddle, right? So you hear this like five-day instead of 10-day quarantine, but you're not requiring a negative rapid test result to come back to work because probably we don't have enough tests, although then the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, says, no, that's not the reason. It doesn't seem very believable. And it's muddled, but also... Again, I just feel like we're not being given the straight talk, which has been a huge frustration of mine all along with the public health messaging. And it just feels so frustrating. And I think that's why I'm maybe overly (laughs) optimistic or at least like trying to imagine that in a few weeks, you know, there's going to be tons of super useful natural immunity along with, of course, the amazing gift of the vaccines. And then we're going to just just like figure out a different stage because this just feels unsustainable. And you also have the benefit of, right, those therapeutics that can, even if you're vaccinated and you get sick and you're in hospital, there are things they can give you now. Right. I mean, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because if you have pills that mean that there's a 90 or 80% reduction in your hospitalization chances, if you get really sick, that should also be a game changer. And we're pretty close to mass marketing of those pills, right? One other thing I would add is that there does seem to have been a view that basically once you're vaccinated, you were pretty much protected. And Omicron has bounced that on its head. There's also, though, the fact that... Well, but wait a second. I mean, Omicron is not bounced on this head that if you're fully vaccinated, you're not going to get really sick. And My that point is for the, should be the measure. Yeah, but not if you're talking about things like schools where people have to quarantine. So in other words, you're not sick. You may not even feel anything, but you now got to quarantine for five days. You don't have a teacher teach math, can't teach math. Everybody's got to stay home. So we're talking about the public policy implications of this, not the, the I mean, the, the rule before was not only are you not going to get sick, but you're not going to get it. I mean, sure, no vaccine is 100%, but certainly the the messaging and the thinking was once you're vaccinated, we can go back to to life. And that has not been the case. Lots of people who are vaccinated are getting sufficiently, they're getting COVID and that's causing all of these problems. Even if they're not going to the hospital, it's causing these these other problems. On the other hand... Totally agree. I just think it's always really important to make this distinction between the vaccines not preventing any transmission or preventing breakthrough infections versus getting really sick. Because I think for most people, yes, the inconveniences and the staffing problems are real and they're causing huge problems. But that is different from taking on a serious risk of you know, and, severe illness or death. And in fact, the people that you were talking about who feel like they're done with it, can in fact partially feel like they're done with it because they know if they get it because they're vaccinated and boosted, it ain't going to be that bad. Whereas if we were still living in an age where there was no protection and it was making you go to a hospital and get on a ventilator, they might be a little different. The only final point I would make is I know you weren't trying to do this, David, but there's a big difference between people who might be, uh, you know, having difficulty sorting the science in the right way to get the public health message through and the clogginess of bureaucracy and those failures of public health and the failures that were taking place in the Trump administration, which were the result of a programmatic and consistent downplaying of the fact that the virus was was out there and was virulent. For sure. Yes. I, I looked, I was looking this morning at the numbers in my city, Washington, D.C., which is the epicenter of uh, well, so it has it's had the highest infection rate of any place in the world in the past couple of weeks, and it looks like it's topped out here. Looks like it looks like we've peaked. So if you compare it to what's happened in South Africa, I'm thinking maybe in a place like DC, maybe it's it's uh, you know a week a week of of more where it's still pretty high, and then it's just going to plummet, 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 plummet. So that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for. And actually, is at just to that point, which is like my I have spent the last three weeks in the house with two COVID infected children, one of whom who got slightly sick, just had the vaccine, one who got not at all sick, had the vaccine, the booster, and I had the vaccine, the booster and did not get sick. So, I mean, it's like it was it is it's a totally livable disease with this situation. If you are, you know, for most people who are who are vaccinated and boosted. Elizabeth Holmes was convicted of four counts of defrauding investors. 
this past week. She was not convicted of charges of defrauding the people who were subject to her bogus Theranos tests, but uh, she was convicted of, of defrauding investors. And unless she wins on appeal, she's very likely to be going to prison for many, many years, up to 20 years, in fact. So, Emily, is this justice? Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't know. I have a lot of schadenfreude about Elizabeth Holmes. Sometimes I question my own schadenfreude about it. But it's just, I mean, God, what a huckster. And I think there is something about messing around with public health in the way that she was doing that just seems so offensive. And especially in this time where we're thinking about public health all the time, the idea that someone came along and promised this like practically magical um, way of testing blood that was going to, you know, change everything and then delivered not a shred of that. It just seems like outrageous. It's interesting that the counts against her about conning patients were not successful in court. And I think part of the reason for that is that doctors were able to make sure that those patients got proper testing, right? There were these fail-safes in the system that when her fake test didn't deliver results were able to protect people. Um, So I guess that's a kind of cheery side of the story. But mostly it's just seems in retrospect so unbelievable that she got access to this incredibly elite set of people at you know the top of American government, Jim Mattis, George Schultz, like the whole foreign policy blob seems to have been on her board. And then all the this gobs and gobs of money that came her way from venture capital funds. I guess my question is how much is this conviction going to change the way this kind of selling operates? And there was also fawning original press coverage too before the Absolutely. The great coverage that yes. un, un, uncorked it. But, um, right. I, and then they tried to basically like bully and intimidate John Kerry of the Wall Street Journal yeah. out of breaking the story, which was so crucial to understanding what had really happened. Don't you assume that the answer to your question, Emily, is nothing at all will have changed? Zero. All the incentives are <sighs> still mean, there. Pres- yeah. I like, guess I think presumably those VC funds don't want to get screwed in the same way. And there might be a little bit of uh, hesitation. I mean, one thing that clearly went wrong was that people in Silicon Valley who had tech expertise pretended or imagined they could have kind of medical expertise in the same way. And that was why they got taken for such a ride. And I would assume that maybe they would do a better job of vetting and checking the next time. I, so, oh my God, I have so many thoughts about all of this. First of all, I actually do, I do not feel sorry for Elizabeth Holmes, but Elizabeth Holmes, there's something depressing in the fact that the only woman in this club of messianic monsters who have have risen to the top of VCs is going to prison while people like Adam Newman of WeWork or Travis Kalanick at, at Uber to name just two of the terrible bros who who have run companies that shaded the line. While they got away with billions, she's she's a disgrace. And I don't And she's going to j- prison. Disgrace. <laughs> and she's going to prison. And it's part you know, of course partly it is that she made the mistake of going to work in the medical field and not going to do something that was just some dumb service for millennials where if it fails no one cares. But She's by no means the only person who has lied or shaded or, you know, given given overly prophetic messianic talks about what her product is going to do. And it is sort of weird that she's the only one who gets to go to prison. And and they all play as they all play the show. They all perform like this. And it's, you know, I don't as I said, I don't feel sorry for her, but it is. It's weird that Adam Newman still has billions of dollars uh, when we work with such a piece of fraud, too. And Theranos at least had an admirable goal. Like it wasn't she was trying to do something good. I don't think she didn't set out to create something that was a fraud. She set out to do something that was like actually would help people. She completely failed. She lied about it. She deceived people and she she took uh, people for hundreds of millions of dollars. But, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't just like Facebook or DoorDash or WeWork, which are not trying to do anything in the world. So she, she was aspiring to something greater. I the, the, the main point that I wanted to make actually goes to your, your technical point, Emily, which is that, in fact, she didn't get money from the people who knew about this field, right? She got money, Theranos got money from VC, some VCs, but mostly from people who were investors who just were taken in by the marketing job and the sales job. 
And they, the people who are real experts were never really allowed to look at the machinery and look at the data. And that is obviously um, should have been a huge sign. I think it was a huge sign to the more biotech focused VCs in Silicon Valley because they were like, well, if we can't really see what this is doing, it's not a good place for us to be. And I, I just remember as somebody who has raised, I mean, I spent years of my life at Atlas Obscura raising money from VCs and other kinds of investors and the experts, like when you go take your pitch to people who know more about this field than you do, those are the best pitches. I mean, they're so painful. People tell you exactly what's wrong with your business and why your business is going to fail and all the mistakes that you've already made and all the mistakes that you're going to make and why it's a really bad investment for anybody. And that's really great. I mean, like those those meetings when I would go and someone would just hand me my hat and tell me how stupid I was, um, those were the most challenging intellectually intellectually challenging meetings I've ever had in my life. And they were great. And when somebody like that who gave you that many that much criticism then went ahead and invested it was an incredible feeling of vindication it was like well we obviously have something if this guy who knows so much about this field it was always a guy if this guy who knows so much about this field is is willing to put his money in it then maybe we really have something here and it's a shame that holmes didn't didn't put uh, theranos to the same test she probably would have had a better outcome had she had she been more rigorous in what she was doing so, David, since you're the person who's actually raised money in this environment, is this conviction going to change anything? I want to borrow a point made by excellent, excellent writer Matt Levine, which is that there's too much capital floating around. Right now, there's too much money. Rich people have too much money. VC funds have too much money. They've had huge gains from everything. There, there's more money available than there are decent investments. And so what happens is that that the money that's available looks at the investments available and moves really, really quickly. If you don't move fast, you don't get a chance to invest in these new companies. And so people are doing even less due diligence than they used to do. And some of them are going to be frauds. Um, but on the other hand, if you if you get defrauded one time out of 10, if if the company you invest in one times out of 10 is just is a bullshit company built on complete nothingness, that's not a really bad situation to be in as long as as long as a couple of the other ones come through at 100x you're fine so i don't think there's been any lesson at all learned it's not a great situation so i think there will be yeah i think there'll be a lot more uh kind of ponzi schemes and and homes like fraudulent uh, companies in the next few years and i look forward I to the reporting about all of it of, i find this aspect of inequality of wealth so distressing just like morally distressing people are like looking for things to waste their money on because they have they're sloshing around in it and meanwhile like most people have so little Ugh. but isn't that in tension with what you were saying earlier which is that the gauntlet that uh that you have to run through with these people with all this money gives you a shape-up routine oh. that makes you sharper oh oh i think f when you choose to do it and i guess what i'm just trying to say is that home homes missed out on that chance uh and took the easier route and that was that was probably great for her uh, ego for a while, but it wasn't good for her company or her investors in the long run. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily Bazelon, when you are having a delicious cocktail in the sun in whatever sunny place you are, what are you going to be chattering about with your dear ones? I am really enjoying Crossroads, the new novel by Jonathan Franzen, uh, which several people recommended to me. It is really living up to my memories of the corrections as being this like big, bountiful, rich novel about a messed up family. So I recommend that. And I also deeply recommend an essay in The New Yorker, probably from last week, by Parl Segal, who is one of my favorite critics. She wrote an essay called The Case Against the Trauma Plot. And it was one of those pieces that's so satisfying to read because the author identifies and names a concept that you've been sort of has been tickling at least the back of my mind for a long time, but that I didn't really have a vocabulary or a framework for. Um, I just thought it was excellent. And along the way, she skewered various uh, books that I really also don't like or object to along the same line. So The Case Against the Trauma Plot by Parl Segal. Isn't that mostly about A Little Life, that Hanya Yanagahara novel, which I am the only person who hasn't read? Right, exactly. And that is a book that I know lots of people loved. I really struggled with it, um, just found it really manipulative and kind of maudlin. Um, so 
Yeah, don't get that one. Uh, it is various important people in my life's favorite novel, notably my daughter, who's over there. I, I'm in a minority here, so I feel safe criticizing this book. It's already been a big hit. Lots of people loved it. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is about Windows Swap, uh, which is a website, window-swap.com, that you can go to and check out a window looking out onto the world, anywhere in the world. So uh, you can, you know, check out, uh, uh, I guess, where was I? Um, Manitoba, Canada. And, and it shows you what's happening out that window. And usually various people, particularly the ones in Iceland, have some incredibly pleasing music playing in the background. It, it just cycles through these incredible views of the world. And it's very pleasing to have on in the background while you're working because usually the music and sound is kind of either white noise or some pleasing music. But then you look up and you're like, suddenly you're in Melbourne. They are recordings of video. So it's not a live feed. So if you're looking in Stockholm, you won't see snow on the ground necessarily. So I recommend it to anyone. That sounds great. Very Dickersonian, too. I just felt very closed in in my window in New York City, so I wanted something that was immediately transporting, and there it was for me. Hmm. My chatter is actually three quick chatters. First of all, I rewatched Fight Club with my sons the other day uh, and realized, wow, how much did the white nationalist dirtbag assholes who are so corrupting our country did they learn from it? It is so much of what this sort of paramilitary, ultra macho, white supremacist ethos comes directly. And a lot of the, the, the actual tropes and the visuals and the kind of appearance and the haircuts come out of Fight Club. And wow, they learned the wrong lesson. They really learned the wrong lesson from that movie. I mean, it, it, is a, it does, I suppose, glorify violence in some ways, but it really is just about what a false substitute for actual human connection it is. And my goodness, what a disappointment. But then a lovely movie, a really lovely movie, which if you have kids, especially kids who are interested in video games, I cannot recommend enough. I didn't, I was so skeptical. It's called Free Guy. It came out last year. It's Ryan Reynolds plays a background character in a video game who is alive and who develops a consciousness. And it's, it's, like, it's like the Truman Show or Groundhog Day it has that kind of vibe, and it's a very funny movie, And it, but it also grapples with the same hefty philosophical questions that those movies grapple with, and in a very light way. Now, it's not the deepest movie ever made, but it's, it's lovely and funny and thoughtful, and it's just it's great. And, and, and kids who like video games, I think, will really groove to it. So definitely check out Free Guy. And finally, just a reminder, uh, listeners, if you live in Salt Lake City or Houston or Denver and Chicago— we have CityCast in all of those cities now. They're all so good. We are doing daily podcasts in those cities. Please check them out. They are great ways to connect with your city or to reconnect with your city. They're amazing. They're warm. They're funny. They're smart. They're useful. If you have any trouble finding them, let me know. I will subscribe you in Salt Lake, Houston, Denver, Chicago, and next week in Pittsburgh. So check it out. Also, of course, we have a listener chatter this week. And our listener chatter this week was sent to us uh, and they can be sent to us via tweet at SlateGabFest. You can email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And it's something that, that enraptures you, that fi you find curious or diverting or fascinating or horrifying uh, that you will be talking about. Please send them to us at gabfest at slate.com or tweet them to us at, at slategabfest. And our listener chatter this week comes from Cynthia Weiner. Hi, Slate Political Gabfest. This is Cynthia Weiner calling from Indianapolis, Indiana. My cocktail chatter for this week is looking at the winners of Smithsonian Magazine's Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards for 2021. These pictures are hilarious photos of animals caught in the wild doing various poses. What I like about it is not so much the pictures themselves as some of the hilarious captions of these animals caught out in nature. My favorite one is not one of the 10 winners, but a runner-up, which shows three little raccoons who look like they are whispering to one another as they are on some sort of stakeout. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. I, uh, I love cute animal photos. I, I've watched, I haven't looked at this year's entries, but I've looked at that contest in the past. It's so, so charming. 
That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas, managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Slate Plus, how are you? I was listening to the Culture Gab Fest year-end show the other day, and they had a question on there that grabbed my attention and made me think, which was, what work of art would you like to own? Would you like to possess? What a great subject. It was really fun listening to them talk about it. And I thought, why don't we why don't we steal this question and talk about it ourselves? And Jamel has stayed around to do this with us. So uh, we're going to do it. And I'm, I'm going to start. So I would start by, by first... Uh, in a moment of, of uh, virtue signaling, say that there are very few works of art I would actually want to possess. I'm not, that is not my form of greed. And I think it would be a lot of responsibility to own something that was very, very valuable. And it would be a lot of work and you'd have to, you know, have humidity control in your house and things like that. So I wouldn't want that. But I will, I want to run through a few things because I gave this quite a lot of thought. There's a photo I actually own the piece of art that I like most in the world, and it's a photo by a woman named Anastasia Taylor Lind of a wedding in Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's an amazing photo that I got her to print at a huge scale. It ran in the New York Times, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and it's just an incredible photograph compositionally, and then also it just it just says, speaks to me, it sings to me. So that, uh, the only thing I've ever lusted for, I actually have. So that's great. But if I could... If I could, there are like us. I don't like most Rothkos, but there are a few Rothkos that kind of vibrate. And I would like one of the ones that vibrate, one of those vibrating Rothkos. That would be great. I would have that. I would have a kind of calm room. It would be a big room and there would be a big Rothko on the wall in my meditation room. And then also in my meditation room would be the thing that I maybe I want most, which is that this artist named Wolfgang Leib creates sculptures out of beeswax and he made this a room out of beeswax and it glows and gleams and it smells amazing and it was it was the greatest sensation i've ever had in an art museum i would like to own that um and then in my fun room oh my god how big is this damn house oh it's well it's great well i've once you get started, you can just keep going. In my fun room, I would have uh, Alexander Calder has this thing he created, pr- I think, pretty early in his – actually, I don't know when in his career. But it's, a fi- it's called Finny Fish, and it, it's in the National Gallery of Art. And it's, it's a wire and metal sculpture of a fish in which the gills and, and, and scales of the fish are made of, like, little shards of ceramic or shards of glass – and it's so cool and so fun. Whenever I see it, I crack up. I would like to have Finny Fish. Um, and then I'd probably get a Van Gogh just to have and be able to sell in case of emergency. The Van Gogh, the church at Arles. I would get that. What about uh, what about you, Jamel? Uh, so my favorite photographer is Walker Evans, who was um, who's most known for his work as a photographer for the Farm Security Administration during the, um, the Great Depression under the New Deal. And a lot of his work from this period is just documenting the effects of the depression on American life. But he has this eye for structure and for graphic design. And so a lot of my favorite photos of from Evans from this period are just of buildings and structures with, you know, advertisements and that kind of stuff. And so in his monograph here, Walker Evans' uh, American Photographs, there is a photo um, that is just a, a picture of a shuttered building, like a, on a city block. That the picture is of a. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/slash/gabfestplus to become a member today.